0: The Arthropod. The Arthropod is the home for the wonderful, weird, wacky world of insects. Hosted by Jonathan Larson, Jody Green, and Michael Scavarla.
1: Welcome back, everybody, to Arthropod, your entomology podcast. I am one of your hosts for the day, Jonathan Larson of the University of Kentucky.
2: And I am one of your other hosts, Jody Green from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln.
0: And I'm the last host today, Michael Scavarla with Penn State University. And we are very honored to have a special guest joining
1: us here over Zoom today. Very special guest. Would you be so kind as to introduce yourself to the Arthropod listeners?
3: My name is Rick Redden. Rick, Vetter, and I'm a retired staff research associate from the University of California Entomology and spider well, girl,
1: expert. You are a spider expert. I think that's a very important thing to throw out there as we get started here, uh, and that's one of the reasons that we wanted to talk to you here today. So we have been coming up with uh, our, our Halloween season programming. Jody, Mike, would you agree that that's kind of what we've been thinking about in the last couple of months?
0: Yeah, now that it's October, it's spooky season. Spooky season. Um,
1: what's spookier than spiders to a lot of people was sort of one of the thought processes that we had, and so we uh, cooked up this episode today with you. Our next one is actually going to be forensic entomology. So we're, I think, we're having a really a, a cool October here this year. But we're diving into spiders with you. Uh, we were hoping that maybe uh, as we kick off the episode, though, you could kind of share your origin story with the listeners. How did you get into spiders, and sort of what was your career focused on?
3: Well, what got me started in, uh, in spiders was I, I was really always interested in predator-prey interactions. It's just fascinating. You've got butterflies that, that look like dead leaves with holes in them. You've got ants that are have uh, a, a head. It's just a block that would block off a access to the colony. Just amazing stuff. And so I got involved with Black Widows from my, as an undergrad, looking into aposematic coloration. Spent a lot of time looking for that and got nothing out of it. But I was pathologically shy as an as a undergrad, and all through up to undergrad. When I went to grad school, when I became the spider expert. Black Widow expert. I lived in a graduate dormitory and it was a calling card for, for all these people when we have dinner or whatever. Like, are you are the Spider-Man? What about rattlesnakes? What about scorpions? And they pulled me out of uh, my shyness and allowed me to speak. And then I got a job at uh, University of California, Riverside. It was mostly working on pheromones and moths but got kicked into the spider thing where in 1992 where a person had a quadruple uh, amputation, lost both legs at the knees, both arms at the elbows. And they said, uh, she remembers being bitten by a spider right before that. And so they asked doctors, what kind of spider can do that? Well, baromexuses can. Well, actually baromexuses do not cause amputations. But I got interviewed by the four major TV stations in Los Angeles at that, that that day. There's one right after the other, media circus. And I mean, I did mostly Black Widows, which are very plentiful out here in California. But they, they're asking me all these questions on on uh, barrelectros, like where are is found uh, behind cardboard boxes. I'm trying to remember a paper I read ten years before that. And I got it all right, but all of a sudden I was a brown recluse expert with having you know no no experience with them, and so That's kind that got, of amazing. They got me started, and so I started talking to people around Southern California. Where can I find these brown recluses? Well, you can't. They're not here, but you know everybody has a story about a brown recluse bite. Yeah, but they're not here. I started going to the Rechnology meeting, national entomology meetings, talking to people. And they also said, lots of people saying, oh, we have bronchitis, but there's no proof. And so it was one of those things I realized there was no arachnologist that was providing information to the general public. It all was coming from the general public and doctors who had no experience with with spiders. And that became a very common thing in the literature where it's like, if you don't know what it is, it's the brown bite. And so it just, when I started, actually, I call it a crusade as well, as many other people call it a crusade. And I started trying to put the information together and actually be, fill that niche of being a arachnologist who can answer the questions on brown because I saw that there was no one doing it. And if you look at the early medical literature, I mean, they have things like in Colorado, a woman was cleaning cobwebs off the patio, off the front porch, and that's how she got bit. Well, brown don't make webs in in porches, and plus Colorado doesn't have any brown recluses. So I just started putting together putting together information. And at first, I was blasted by all these people. It was like tilting windmills. Everyone, you know, the belief was out there that brown recluses are everywhere causing these bites. And it's just like, I talked to people at the Racknowledge meeting and said, yeah, we get lots of diagnoses of bronchitis bites, but we don't have any of the spiders. And so I just took it upon myself to try and, uh, so I also described it as, was walking into a meeting of the Flat Earth Society with a globe saying, look, people, this is, what's, this is what's going on. It just was a crusade One one, I had like a 10-year plan of papers I wanted to publish. And yeah, I got about, I don't know, about 30 papers out. As one of my students, spider students said, you got another publication and you say the same damn thing. <laughs> That's right. There's no barmanacres in your area and there's misdiagnoses. And so it ended up with a lot of papers in like Annals of Emergency Medicine, but two premier papers was a review article in New England Journal of Medicine and a short paper in JAMA dermatology on things that are not recluse bites. Because what quite often happens is people will describe what a recluse bite does, but what was happening is they were expanding the spectrum of, of symptoms. And so here, like this is what is an acronym, not recluse, and each letter stands for something some reason why it's not a brown recluse, but apparently that caught caught fire in the medical community.
1: That's great to hear. It does sound like a, quite the crusade that you were on, uh, produced a lot of academic literature, and it ultimately culminated in your book, which I think we all have copies of that we're going to show on screen here today, The Brown Recluse by Richard S. Vetter. Um, excellent book. We're going to talk about it as we go through the episode. I'm going to include some links to reputable book on the internet so that people can go buy it as well. But uh, was this sort of like the culmination of all of that effort and all of that work um, to become quite literally the guy that wrote the book on the spider? Yep. <laughs> it all boiled down to this.
3: Yeah. Basically I wrote, I wrote most of the chapters. I, uh, one, year, one year I gave like seven talks on the East coast. And so I wrote a chapter on each flight, like one, one flight would be life history, another flight would be medical aspects, another one would be uh, medical misdiagnoses.
2: Well, yeah. I want you to know that everything that you've written in your crusade, we continue to pass down that information. So, but we understand how hard it is to battle misinformation for years and that fear that people have of spiders, which I don't think any of the three of us have i mean i love if i could talk about spiders every day i would
1: <laughs> i tried to I try to make it a
3: point it
2: yeah. mm-hmm. it's been a fun trip
1: i also like your your method for sitting down and writing uh i may steal that uh, just start getting flights booked and i'll sit down and actually get some writing done outside of my office
3: yeah it was it was a productive time
2: what were people's reaction to you when you became an arachnologist like, did they think it was cool, or did they think it was not cool?
3: Well, the most I'd say the most common reaction when people find out I'm a arachnologist is in the comment, "I hate spiders." I mean, it's like don't even ask them about their opinion of spiders. It's like I'm an arachnologist. Well, I hate spiders. I say ninety percent of the general public are like that. Yep.
2: Yeah. Yep. And then that's how it happened. When it's like I, I almost want to just tell people I'm a bus driver, so I don't have to fight with how much they hate bugs or yeah, I like, I like butterflies, but I hate spiders. I'm like, you don't need to like them. Like I just, I'm telling you what I do.
3: (laughs) Well, I used to work in a lab at the honeybees, yellow jackets. And when you tell people you work with honeybees, they immediately have an understanding that you're doing something useful. But when you work with spiders, it's like, I hate spiders. Right. Or ew, ew.
2: So can you, if someone did not know what a brown recluse spider was, how would you describe this particular spider? And is it a group or is it a specific?
3: Okay, like most common names, they should be assigned only to one species. In this country, we've got brown recluse, which is in the Midwest, but all the other ones have common names like the Apache recluse, Texas recluse, Arizona recluse. Desert a recluse out in Southern California. So the, really, when you talk about the brown recluse, you should be talking about the one species. Although, uh, if you want to talk about the group, I would say recluse spiders, fiddleback spiders, violinback spiders, those are all good names for the group.
0: Do we know... I, we're not going to talk about the other species too much today, except to note that like, we do have some in the Southwest. But, I mean, do we know, are they... As encountered as brown recluse? Do people interact with them? Are they bitten as much? Is there as much concern with Apache recluse and in the other species?
3: No, the other species seem to be more relegated to the um, natural environment. And you only get you only get uh, you only find like the Apache recluse or the desert recluse in homes. That are budding up to the na- like n- native desert habitat. The brown recluse itself, though, is different. It's synanthropic, and you find it in homes, uh, in urban areas, very common as a uh,
0: as a house spider. When I uh, lived in Arkansas, I did a lot of burlesying of leaf litter, uh, sticking my hands in tree holes to get that good kind of. Decayed tree matter at the bottom of tree holes, and I found brown recluse occasionally in in tree holes or, you know, like under a rock overhang and leaf litter and stuff. Um, So is it just that like the houses that we build in the the kind of synanthropic environment is a closer to like what their naturally what their natural habitats are than say desert recluse and the other species?
3: Well, I think the word synanthropic means populations increase in association with people. And so you won't find these, the concentrations of brown recluses in natural habitat as you build a house. I think this is just my uh, flailing guessing, but I think their, their ancestral habitat was caves. They would get into a cave and they would populate the cave tremendously. And that's one thing that's common with brown recluses you could have a, a garage. There's, a, I was visiting somebody in Missouri. Their garage was infested with but their house, 25 feet away, had no spiders. And it also happened with the the building in New York, in New York City. There was only one building. And so I think what happens is we provide them with a happy environment, and they they do well inside of houses, and it may just be a uh, spider infestation. They don't disperse well. So how about
1: some ways that people can know that they're looking at uh, loxicellia reclusa? What are some of the identifying characteristics of that spider in particular?
3: Well, in fact, it's mostly like a drab brown spider. It's not very exciting. Right. Like a black widow. It's like a red hourglass. But um it's got on the cephalothorax, which is the body part to which the Legs attach on the, on the dorsal surface, the top surface, there's a violin shape. Very prominent, very easy to see. But the problem is when you say, you know, how can people identify it? Problem is that, that many spiders have a mark that people creatively will misidentify as brown as a violin pattern. And there's a nice figure in my book showing about six different different species in the front and these well, people are very creative in finding finding right violin marks that's it
1: people see fiddles when they're not there is what you're saying
3: right i've i've had people what's funny kind of funny is that people will for a lot ofologists they will vehemently then base us because of the turn of a spider and it's like here, here's a brown reckless I found in Washington. Saying, well, that's not a brown reckless. Yes, it is. They will argue with us. You now, they bring a spider in for identification, and they will argue with us as to whether it's brown reckless or not. But people in the Midwest are very good at identifying these brown I mean, uh, it's mostly the people outside the range that have trouble with it. But it's a brown spider with a violin pattern. But the better way to do it is to look at the eyes. Most spiders have eight eyes and two rows of four. Pretty recluse spiders as a group have six eyes, a pair in front and a pair on either side, separated by a space. It's not the only spider that has six eyes. Part of the problem is people won't get that close to the spider. Spider Identity.
1: optometry is not on, not high on most people's lists of activities yeah. they want to do. I
3: mean, I've gotten, I've gotten pictures of for identification of a spider on a wall taking it from about 15 feet away. I was afraid to get near it. And it's like, the spider takes up like three pixels.
1: <laughs> yeah, that sounds very familiar.
3: And it's like, what is it, you know?
1: A bad picture, <laughs> was that your stock response?
3: Well, sometimes I say, I think I see Sasquatch in the picture too.
2: Yeah, and has it always, been the case when people ask, can you identify this spider? The answer they really want to know is, is this a brown recluse spider? Most of the time, yes. They don't really care what kind of spider is, as long as it's not brown recluse. Right. In your experience, which spider is the one that's most commonly mistaken for brown recluse? Well,
3: in the southern third of the country, it's the Cucocania spiders, the southern house spider, and or the crevice weaver. The males are tan with a, with, with a uh, long thin legs, and they actually look a lot like close. But the thing is, they have eight eyes all clumped together. But those are That's the males that are tan. Kind of interesting. The females are like solid black. A solid brown, very different. But that's the most common one in the Southern United States. California, the, the most common one is Tidiotis. People send it all the time. I had one guy, no brown reckless in California. Look at this one. And I thanked him for the very nice photo and gave him four reasons why it's not a brown reckless. And he came back with, I guess I need to get a magnifying glass. But they challenged me on my, on my map and my stuff. And uh, actually, in a snotty way, I would say there's a reason they call us experts.
2: We know what that's like, too.
3: <laughs> yep. <laughs>
2: it's like the me, man.
3: <laughs> that's one reason I brought, wrote the book, is that people can, argue, you know, flash the map. Here, take mm-hmm. a look. They're not here.
2: Yep. Yeah. Do the juvenile roundocle spiders also have the fiddle shape?
3: Yeah, but sometimes it's not as The real young ones don't have a very defined fiddle. But by maybe the third instar, it looks like a recluse. Okay. Actually, there's an amusing story of a very accomplished, qualified entomologist who was working on recluses. And he says, that's interesting. The, the babies have eight, uh, three eyes and di- triads, not dyads. And I was like, really? Send me a couple of specimens. And it actually was a, f- a falsehood of cell spider. I think a spermiformis, cell- Cyniclo- which only gets to be two millimeters long as an adult. He was rather embarrassed by that. That I moved into, that's, the, that's the infamy of the brown recluse that people just make assumptions that are just not there.
0: So, with mistaken IDs, I get a lot of wolf spiders and agilenids, uh, especially this time of year when they're coming in people's houses and people are worried that they're brown recluse. Um, but of the, oh gosh, thousand spider IDs that I've gotten in the last five years, um, I did get one submission that uh was a brown recluse um you know that the the people caught it in the house sent it in um and it was weird because it was here in pennsylvania which is well outside of the range of them uh and when i asked some follow-up questions it turned out that they lived in the midwest and moved about five years before so as best as i can figure they must have brought the spiders with them in moving boxes and the spiders just populated their house and the and uh, my predecessor here had said that in the 25 years he was here, he saw four or five species, four or five examples of the same thing, where somebody had lived in the moved Midwest and brought the recluse with them. Um, so I'm always a little wary to just dismiss people when they say that they've got brown recluse, although I am, you know, all, it's almost never them. Um, do you know how common it is for that to happen, where? You know, like you show the range map and you're like, they're not here, but maybe somebody lived where they were before and brought the spiders with them when they moved.
3: Yeah, that's actually, I mean, I have no trouble with that. And what people don't seem to understand is that the distribution map is where you would find breeding populations, not just the, uh, the rare itinerant that gets moved around. You now they do, actually, I'm surprised that there's not I'm surprised the spider surprise is spiders not found throughout the country in, in, in good numbers. They love cardboard boxes. And so think about all the people who moved. Actually, the one example I always use is think of the Dust Bowl era where all the people from Oklahoma, Kansas moved to California. Think of all the thousands of cardboard boxes and possessions they brought with them. Think of all the thousands of brown records they brought with them. And yet there's no population of brown recluse in California, but they do get occasionally put, moved around. But the problem is, and people, that's another place where people are feeling. You gotta change your map. I found a spider here. Well, that's not how you do science. And also what happens is people will have find a spider, a recluse like in Michigan was one case, and in the DC area. And what they wanted, the one in the DC area was telling people, this is an entomologist was telling people that the spiders had moved all the way across Virginia. And they they would be found, they could be found. Uh, and I pointed out this actually was the Mediterranean recluse, which was a worldwide tramp. And so it wasn't even the Brown Recluse. And he was rather embarrassed by that.
0: I'm glad you brought up Mediterranean recluse because I was going to ask. That's a species, like you mentioned, has been shipped worldwide. Um, There was a good article in American Entomologist a few years ago about the established population in Washington, D.C. I know here at State College, they're established in the steam tunnels below Penn State, um, although nobody ever encounters them. Uh, And so there's, there's already precedent for Locacelli species being moved around and establishing well, like around the world. Um, so I guess to your point that brown recluse are frequently moved around because people move and they get in boxes and stuff, I guess I just that makes me even more surprised that brown recluse populations haven't established outside of their native range to to a big extent.
3: Right. The Mediterranean recluse has a propensity for establishing in, in single buildings around the world and then the brown reckless given the chance i mean considering how many millions of people have moved around you know they really aren't everywhere and i think i I, i've seen some um seen some mediterranean recklesses, i think it was in harrisburg again it was in the steam tunnels also i think i'd like to step back a bit. The, the pronunciation of, of the spiders is like isosceles, not loxosceles. Oh, well, I learned something. Thanks. Well, loxosceles, loxos is crooked and celles is legs, like isosceles triangle has two equal legs. So loxosceles. There's one arachnologist who used to pronounce it. I said skeelies, and that was just like fingernails on a chalkboard for me.
1: Well, we apologize for our mispronunciation here today, but we appreciate you letting us know so we can sound erudite going forward. Uh, and correct regards, people. What's that?
3: And correct others.
1: There we go. Yes, that'll be our party trick. <laughs> uh, regarding the spiders when we encounter them, what? Wow. Can you describe their behavior to people? I I know that in my experience, talking to people when they bring up brown recluses, they always say it leapt at me, um, it attacked me, it, it came after me. When we actually encounter these, is their name kind of evocative of their true behavior? Um, are they a little introverted? Are they are they going to run away or are they mad spiders, kind of waiting to
3: get us? Yes, lurking in the shadows. <laughs> Uh, actually uh, I visited the house the famous house in Kansas where they found 2,000 rec- over oh, 2,000 recluses in six months and we went up into the attic and I was warned to not step on on, on loose pieces of wood because as soon as they feel vibration they take off so they're not, they're not interested in hanging around now, lots of spiders are reclusive. So it's just that I think what happens is that name just stuck with the brown recluse. But no, they're not looking out, trying to bite, trying to get you. They don't jump. Um, actually, in those extreme, they're very difficult to bite. There was one paper, I, I can't find it anymore, where they tried, they pushed some reckless spiders into like rabbit skin or whatever. And the, the, the author said I was afraid I was gonna crush the spider's head before it would bite. It just and Will Will Skirch who named off like 48 species of reckluses from Panama Northwood said he collected them all with his fing- bare fingers. No bites.
1: That's very uh Very impressive skill, I would say. Uh, Nice little
3: factoid. Uh, Also, in in transferring, I've raised like five species of recluses and transferring them from a small vial to a bit larger one. I probably had a hundred cases where, a hundred times where a spider went out of the vial and up my forearm. Of course, I flick it back into the, the countertop as fast as possible. But they had no interest in biting me.
1: Some lived experiences. Uh, I would also flip it as quick as possible. I I just want to put that out there. Jody and I have handled these before, uh, and that was usually my reaction. When they're in their reclusive zone, when they're kind of hanging out, what are they doing? Um, I've had people ask me, they, they claim that these are cannibal spiders, that they're just eating each other. They fuel their own population through cannibalism inside your wall voids. I mean, what are they actually up to when they're hiding out in our home? What's what's their diet? Uh, what's their behavior there?
3: Well, they're the, the ultimate sitting way predator. Um, I'm sure they do eat, cannibalize their their kin and their, their same species. But think about this. The Kansas house had over 2,000 recluses in, in six months. She can find yeah the family just can find him now they they may be actually I, i'm always curious of what they are eating that they can the houses can sustain like hundreds of recklesses in part too, they don't need to eat very often. I've had some that that I, I I misplaced for like. Um, maybe it was a year. They weren't very happy, but they were still alive. So they don't need to eat very often.
0: Well, that's interesting because I always kind of assumed that a large recluse population was indicative of some underlying pest problem, like there's termites or there's silverfish or there's some other pest that is, you know, being the prey base that's supporting the the recluse in the the house, but. I guess maybe that's not always the case. Then, if they if they can survive that long without eating,
3: yeah. Well, the house in Kansas was built in the 1850s and out of sandstone blocks. It had a lot of holes in it, and the homeowner sent me the, the sticky traps. And it was like it was like a thoroughfare of insects, I mean, the camel crickets and uh, wasps. And, I mean, they had wasps in the middle of a house. But yeah, I mean, obviously pulling off prey enough to survive and create populations of hundreds, sometimes thousands.
1: Just to go a little further with their behavior, uh, we all know of spiders and their silk production. When we talk recluses, um, do they produce silk? Like, What's their silk look like? And what do they use it for in regards to, do they use it to snare their food? I'm sure inquiring minds listening want to know exactly how they use their webs.
3: Well, they make a really kind of haphazard web from like holes in windowsills or um, maybe, maybe from around the toilet. And they don't use it. They don't use like the orb weavers where the orb weavers are based, the prey, prey captures completely based on their web. They have, they do, they do use that, they do, they do make web a little extension from the hole. And so they'll wait in the hole and hope something falls into the web. So it's like a tickle device. The vibrations will alert the spider to some prey. It rushes out. Also, there's some of them which are free ranging, especially the males when they're searching for females. They are... They'll, they'll run about on their own within, and just capture prey without a web. Now they also, like all spiders, make an egg sac, which involves different the different um, silk glands, silk, silk, silk organs. I think they, they have four different silk organs, whereas like orb weavers have six, black widows have six. And so uh, they make a, a lenticular-shaped egg sack. But that's pretty much it, I think, is it? they'll have the line their burrow with silk and have a few, like, trip wires out from the hole and make egg sacks.
2: Is it similar to the, like, the grass spider Funnel, like when when you say like a hole in the in the window, is it like that, like a kind of a tunnel with some silk out?
3: No, the the the, the edge line make the really impressive like trampoline uh, web. This is more like a spider that started doing something and stopped.
2: So cobwebby, messy.
3: Yeah. <laughs> okay and not and not extended very far
2: from the uh, hole, okay, and then the egg sac is that attached it's attached usually to something
3: yeah usually some some surface
2: are they usually found inside the walls and like are we looking like furniture or structure
3: well some some of the places you'll find them like in, in behind bookcases and paint and, and uh, wall wall art the, in South America, the spider's common name is a spider in the corner, the spider behind the bookcase.
0: So I think what a lot of people are going to want to know about is the venom of uh, Brown Recluse, since, you know, that it's not just the spider, it's the bite that everybody is scared of. um so, let's talk about the venom for for just a minute. Is it uh, you, you know, you mentioned that bites are difficult to get. Um, it's difficult to even make them bite rabbits or or other things. Um, I guess first, do bites occur? like when bra- when brown recluse are pinched in clothing or something? like, do we have you known bites that are definitely brown recluse bites and and if they do occur, um, is the venom everything that people are scared of? Like these photos that you see online of brown recluse bites, where you know somebody's got this progressing uh, uh, necrotizing spot on their arm. Like, is that the brown recluse? Do that? Um, is it everything that people is are are scared that it is?
3: Okay, you've just asked like four or five questions. I
0: know, it's, yeah. So I guess, can you can you talk about um, like, do brown recluse actually bite people? And when when and if they bite people, is the venom as scary as people think it is? Like what happens with a bite?
3: Okay, there's lots of confirmed bites by brown recluse where people roll, roll over on them in bed and crush the spider. Actually, the dermatologist in Missouri who specializes on them said it's very common for women, women that get bit on the inner thighs because they wear tight pants. So they put on the pants and get nabbed. And actually, I'll answer some of the other questions. You go on uh, go online and see those photos, a lot of those are misdiagnoses. In my in the book, in the in my book in the New England Journal of Medicine article, we list about 40 different conditions that can be or have been misidentified as reckless bites. So things like bacterial infections, MRSA is a big one. Actually, that's going. To, I'll get into misdiagnoses later. Most reckless now, now. I like to make an analogy of reckless bites to car crashes. If the only car crashes you heard about were people driving 140 miles into a stone wall, you would think, "My God, no one should ever drive a car." But most most of the 90% of the bites by recklessness end up in just inflammation. no big deal 10% end up in a situation where you you may need a skin graft and then less than 1% is a systemic response usually in children most reckless bites just look like a little rash not a big deal but again it's the just like you know the minor car crashes or, you know, dented, dented fenders or whatever, they don't make the news. You know, man backs into a wall, film 11. Doesn't happen because it's it's most the most common stuff, but it's not news. And so what happens is, is even with the confirmed and verified breakthroughs, bites, it's the extreme ones that make the news or the medical literature. And what happens is people assume that's the average thing to happen.
2: So when you say confirmed bites, how does that happen? How, it's usually a medical professional, right? And what is the diagnosis? How do they determine if it is a spider bite?
3: Well, some of us in uh, Jeff Isperson, Jeff Isperson in Australia, and, and I have been pushing this thing that. It's not a spider bite unless you can find a spider in the act of biting. So you feel something on your leg when you're in bed, roll back the sheets and there's a spider that is crumpled up or you pull a spider out of clothing. Too often in the in past history, and this is the loxoscelism expert, Philip Anderson, said the early literature on brown reckless bites is basically useless because and actually had one of my colleagues said he was told in medical school if it's necrotic lesion, it's a American spike. So you get these things starting in medical school and actually uh, in one of my papers, I wrote, considering that how conservative the medical con- community is in trying a new medicine, new technique, new procedure that they so willingly blame spiders, when they have no idea what what the cause is. But you really need to have it confirmed. And actually I've seen this in the literature where they've actually been adopting this, where unless there's a spider involved, unless there actually is a uh, unfailable proof that you've got a spider there. It's not a spider bite. You got to consider other things. I was going to say also, one of the problems is once you say it's a spider bite, the blinders go on and you get confirmational bias. Yep, yep, spider bite, yep, yep, spider bite. When actually it could be many, many, many things. Again, typically MRSA.
2: So there is not, so to confirm, there is no test that a doctor does with like a swab that. They can test, and it says, "Oh, that's a brown recluse spider bite." That there's no test for that.
3: There, there is um, there's, there is some biopsies that can test for that. I think in, the, in even nanogram quantity, but it's not clinically available. It's it's still experimental.
2: Okay, so they can do a biopsy to test for venom.
3: Yes, but you have to basically get it within the first 24 hours and ship it to, uh, I, think, I think the people in Missouri and they've got to put it on dry ice. So there's a lot involved in getting that thing going.
2: Okay. In the last week, I've had someone tell me that they were sending, like they were getting a biopsy. There was a doctor that told them that it was a brown recluse spider bite and that The doctor told them it's okay. It was an adult brown recluse spider and they know how to control their venom. So you're not going to (laughs) die. And I said, how did the doctor know it was an adult? And he said, well, juvenile brown recluse spiders can't control their venom. So it's out of control and that will really hurt you. But the doctor determined that it was an adult brown recluse spider. And I was like, how did he how did they do that? And they said, I don't know. I said, do they measure something? How do doctors know first that it was a spider, and second, that it was a brown or clue spider, and third, that it was an adult?
3: Again, you see this freelancing of, of interpretations uh, by the medical community. I mean, I, I've had other people say, yeah, it was biopsied as a brown recluse bite. Well, it's not clinically available. Yeah, okay. but they make, they, For some reason, again, with entomologists and the medical community, they just make up stuff. Sounds good, but they just make up stuff.
2: Yeah. And then they bring all their bugs to me to have them identified because they were bitten by a spider. And then they start spraying their house. So Right. Yeah.
3: Using pesticides. Soaking the house, stripping so off mm-hmm. the walls.
2: So, do you think that the medical practitioners contribute to this misinformation?
3: Oh, they have for decades. But actually, they, with all the publications I've gotten out there, I've I've had two physicians tell me I have changed the way that doctors diagnose lesions of spider bites. And I see the in, the in the more recent work more recent publications they'll say you can't call a spider bite unless you got a spider and you gotta consider many other things in the differential diagnosis. So I've actually changed the way doctors diagnose spider bites in before and I did it in my lifetime I didn't yeah. have to, I didn't have to die first
0: that that's gonna feel really rewarding uh, to you new know an impact. <laughs> Damn straight. <laughs> especially
3: since especially since this was not my, my real job. I did all this work in my spare time, which amazed one of my, my colleagues. I mean, said this is an avocation, not, a, not, not part of your position. No, nope. it was all done because I saw this, this niche that was open and seeing that, I mean, the mistakes were being made. Mm-hmm. Again, you call it a spider bite. Again, people will, when it's a bacterial infection, people spray the house, and then they argue with entomologists.
2: Do you think there's a potential for that range to expand? Is that, so is that the native, like the map, going back to the map? So when we are, like, do you think, I guess, moving forward, do you think there's a potential for that range to expand? Probably not. I mean, they've had millennia to figure out where they want to live.
3: And again, people find one spider. Actually the ones I really like is where they they'll send an email saying, I found a bramericlus in, in like Washington State. You need to change your map. No spider image, no proof, just their their impression. But bromiculus don't disperse easily with the global warming and all that. They don't. They, they don't. They don't balloon like widows and, and or weavers. They they let out some silk and then they waft away on air currents and become aerial plankton. Recluses don't balloon. So I have actually one question: Is how do they get around? I have no idea. I mean, you don't find them often running. I mean, uh, yes, right now just. Have you ever seen a brown recluse crawling around at night? Like in Mississippi? No. So I don't know how they get around. Uh, right now, mostly it's people. But again, they've been moved around for years. Like I said, you know, like in the Dust Bowl era, thousands of spiders uh, given the chance to start life in a new area, and they haven't. And what may happen is global warming is they won't go further any further north. They may burn out in the south.
1: I think a big question that I have for you is after hearing all of this, do you think the fear is justified? I mean, this is the spider that we get asked the most questions about as extension professionals. You know, I have people, we take a, a recluse out. We include it as part of our traveling arthropod zoo. We have living ones in our insectarium. And, I mean, people, they freak out, they, you know, they tell me that I'm I'm a hazard to society carrying that around. Uh, is this justified? Like, should people feel this way? And if not, what 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 should they feel?
3: Well, when I give talks, I go, I show, I'll flash up a uh, mortality table, and the three biggest killers are still alcohol, tobacco, and fatty foods. Spiders are way down on the list of things that cause problems. But I've gotten more, many contacts from people from the, the Midwest, Mississippi, Alabama, Kansas. They, they'll say, I've raised, one, one guy was like, I raised four kids in this house in 17 years. We had recluses none, never had a problem with them. Guy in Missouri had them collected like 45 in his house, including one that fell on his arm while he was getting dressed. No bites. So, so it's, it's exa- over-exaggerated as far as the their, their threat to society. When you've got somebody who can live with 2,000 two recluses in the house, it took 11 years before they got bit by one. They reached inside of a sleeve while doing wash. It said, took some drill and then went away. But yeah, people's response to this is just misplaced.
2: So right now I'm dealing with a brown recluse house that has probably about 200 to 300 brown recluse spiders from what I've seen and what they've brought in on various glue boards. And the family just recently paid for a fumigation and they're still seeing spiders.
3: Well, from what I've, the information I've gotten from the pest control industry, I'm pretty much the, the, the spider expert for the for the whole industry. That fumigation works nicely. Um, well, it works nicely as far as reducing numbers. I don't think you mm-hmm. ever, I think that the the karma or their the comment is we don't tell them we're gonna eradicate them or eliminate them. We're going to reduce the numbers to lower. And one of the problems is that, and this is a study I tried to do, but I couldn't get the spiders to cooperate. The fumigation is based on how, how much you need to kill dry wood termites. And so it's like 1.8 units or whatever for killing the spiders like 3.8 or 3.0. The big unknown is what it takes to kill the spiders in the egg sacs. Mm -hmm. So what they do is they use 10x times the drywood termite rate rate, in order to try and knock down the egg sacs. But the problem is we, we have no idea of what it takes to knock down the eggs. When they compare insects so you cockroaches to like Uthika. The Uthika require a lot more gas, fumigant, knocking them down. So it's just, you know, the problem is, right, like when they do it with black widows, black widows will pump out an egg like, every 10 days. Recklesses will pump out like five in a lifetime. And they can live for like three or four years. So it's hard to coordinate hmm Enough egg sacs to get a good sample.
2: Right. So they're long-lived, but they don't produce a lot of egg cases.
3: No. But they again, you think about that, 200, 300 spiders in the house. Yeah. They don't produce many egg sacs. What are they eating? You know, how are they doing this?
2: Pretty amazing. So if you could, like... If you could have one answer to all to any of your one questions, because I have a lot, what would you want that answer to be? Like, how they got there? Where do they go? What do you do all day?
3: Actually, I don't think there's one question. No. How do you make a living? How do you do it? I don't. Yeah.
2: I mean, this house has been a complete mystery to me. When I went there, they just wanted to know, like did I move into this house and they were here or did I bring them here? So from this conversation, it seems like that house has had them for a long time.
3: How long, when
2: did they move in? How many years? She's moved. She bought the house two years ago, but she didn't, like she's not actually living there. She's got some furniture there and that's it, but there's, they're on all three floors, every single room and the garage.
3: It sounds like they've, she bought a house with the reclusions. At which point there's got to be maybe may some disclosure of information that's supposed to be given.
2: Yeah, I don't know. It's very interesting. So I feel like you in a sense that this is not my job anymore, but I'm just so curious and I have this house. Like I haven't asked her for keys to move in yet, but I'm so curious because she won't live in there. She won't move all her things there because she's afraid. So the house it's kind of like it's got some furniture in it, but it's basically empty. I'd like to go collect there. I I don't know if anyone's doing any research on brand recluse right now. No,
3: I would say not.
2: Right. And I think in the future, since with all the calls this year, the increase um, here in Nebraska, I I believe it will be more next year and probably more calls in the future. So how would you advise people then on what to do if they have a few or some or a lot of recluse in their homes?
3: I think call, of- call, call, call the local pest control companies because they're going to have better answers than, than I would have.
1: Well, as we wrap up here today, uh, we are going to include a link in our show notes to a, a really neat video that features you receiving an Ig Nobel uh, Prize uh, it looked like a lot of fun. You were even there's even like coordination of things tra- traversing continental boundaries where you're you're receiving the award like via Zoom panels, right? Right. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it, it seemed like a lot of fun. I apologize, we didn't get a, a Zimbabwean trillion dollar bill to give you as thanks for appearing on our podcast, but uh, it's I'm really still,
3: fun. I'm still spending the money from the first one.
1: Oh, okay. So you're you're in the clear. You're in, you're in the clear uh we we are going to share that with folks so they can see you accepting that uh could you give just sort of a primer for our listeners what was it that you were being awarded for
3: well the the article that got me the prize is one on arachnophobic entomologists when two when two more legs makes a big difference and it always amazed me like uh, i would be talking to my colleagues, and find out that these people, these my, my colleagues, co-workers, are afraid of spiders. I had one, one co-worker who was from uh, Missouri, and she was inculcated to be afraid of brown, brown recluses. And when I was doing one study where I was identifying any spider that I thought was a brown recluse, I would get all these boxes in the mail of spiders. And I was with a grad student that was there. And I opened the box and I pulled up his baggie with a live spider in it. And it was like in the cartoons where the chair just like rocked back and forth in a cloud of dust. And she was gone. <laughs> I, mean, I, I didn't even see her leave. She just went poof. I start thinking about this. And, and uh, there's gotta be more arachnologists or more entomologists out there afraid of spiders. And so I put a questionnaire out in the American entomologist to see if uh, I can get enough responses. I got like 41 responses. And most of them were not afraid of spiders. But I had one person say she works with maggots and would rather pick up a a gloved hand of maggots and deal with a spider. And another one, I think, worked with maggots and said, I hate spiders because maggots or I prefer maggots because maggots don't jump in your hair. So <laughs> the idea that here's I mean the concept of like here you've got people well look at look at the, the diversity of arthropods. Butterflies, ladybugs, beetles, kids, sheep kids, grasshoppers, and when they why can they, because of the diverse morphologies, why do these entomologists not just put the spider into a category similar to the insects, but they, they treat spiders differently. So it was a fun article. Uh, Some people had extreme responses. One was a grad student in our our department who Said she had trouble walking past spider posters, and her, her family would make tarantula type movements with their hands and freak her out.
1: Well, that sounds cruel,
3: mm-hmm. yeah.
1: Yeah, I don't want to downplay, you know, true arachnophobia. I know that there are people out there that have that condition, but in your advice. Uh, as an arachnologist, as the the world expert on brown recluses who literally wrote the book, uh, which we again encourage people to go by, what can we as entomologists do to kind of help people overcome some of this, to help change the, the sort of cultural conversation that occurs around spiders, do you think?
3: Well, for a lot of people, just exposure to the spiders, like in jars, can create a different situation. The woman in in Kansas with the 2,000 recluses, she was arachnophobic, but she just started observing the spiders. Uh, actually, it's kind of funny. After like a year or two, of, or after a year of collecting, she said, "Oh, there were two brown recluses on my behind my head headboard by the bed." And she says, and what? Did you kill them?" "Ah, I was too tired. I thought hell, I'll get them tomorrow." <laughs> And so she was able to go to bed with the recluses on her wall. But exposure to spiders is one way a lot of people deal with it. Start off with spiders in jars, small spiders. Actually, jumping spiders, salticids, are extremely cute. And people, people seem to have no trouble with that one. So you might want to start with salticids and work your way up to tarantulas.
1: I like that idea. We can use uh, Lucas the spider. I don't know if you've seen that cartoon spider floating around on the Internet. He's a big, cute salticid with, with big puppy dog eyes.
2: Yeah, this weekend someone said, I saw a spider and I thought of you. And they said it wasn't as scary as usual. And I said, was it actually kind of cute? And she was like, oh, um, kind of. And I was like, oh, that's a jumping spider. They're very cute. Yep. Colorful
3: cat like yep. people can oh, relate. Right.
1: well I just want to say thank you uh, for all of your your knowledge that you shared today thank you for the great book uh, thank you for working on this spider that so many people seem to just inherently dislike and giving us arming us people like Jody and Mike and myself who work with the public a lot um, it's just it's a goldmine of information to be able to turn to people with and say you know it, the reality is this that, that this is what the spider can do um, that your bite probably has a different problem uh, that it came from. And so it's, just, I just wanted to say, thanks, I guess, Jody, I, I know holds your book in high esteem as well. Do you want to throw in some thank yous?
2: Yeah. I mean, I just appreciate it. I appreciate you having all these resources for us that we use all the time. And I might just buy the lady and the pest control person, your book, <laughs> giving me a copy so they can learn about what the problem
3: is. One thing that I, I was proud of as well is that before I started, there was different factions of people, the ones that believe the spiders are horrible, whatever, and the, the entomologists who were desperately looking for something who may, may be sitting on the fence because they don't have the information. And so I was able to pull thousands of people off the fence to my side of the, of the situation. And I, I am not, the usefulness of this is not lost on me. I knew I was doing a service to the entomology community.
2: And well, we appreciate it.
0: Yeah. Thanks for the book. And thanks again for coming on the show. So we can, you know, get our listeners to to hear about it and maybe dispel some of the Brown recluse myths that they have. Um, It's been, I've really enjoyed listening uh, to all of your answers. So, you know, thanks again. Really appreciate it.
3: Sure. This was fun.
0: With that, we're going to wrap
1: up. Uh, You can find our show online, uh, arthro-pod.blogspot.com. You can find the show on Twitter. where arthro underscore pod show on that platform. I'm at bugmanjohn on Twitter.
2: I'm at Jody Bugsme, UNL.
0: And I'm at mscovarla36.
1: And we're going to put lots of great links to some of Dr. Vetter's uh, different websites and pages that uh, you can take a look at. Uh, one of them that I love the most at the end it ends with this is not the opinion of the University of California Riverside but a highly volatile arachnologist. I think that I might start including that as a as a thing on all of my publications as well. I'll just switch out for entomologists. But thank you again for joining us, Rick. Uh, we really appreciate it. And we'll catch all our listeners on the next episode of Arthropod.
0: It's time for our insect heroes to put away their nets and pheromone traps. Join us next time. Same bug time, same bug channel as the Arthropod gang make the world safe from poor insect podcasts. Until then, keep on bugging.